0: The last piece of our model was a community health worker with a history of lived incarceration. And so we went out and got some funding and we hired Ron Sanders. I was making an action plan to help a gentleman to exercise more and we were talking about going for walks in his community and Ron pulled me aside and said, you don't know where this gentleman lives. Like he can't go for a walk in his community. You need to come up with a different plan. And so we need Ron at the table teaching us how to do this. Ron is the expert.
1: Welcome to The Other 80, I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. Creating this podcast and hearing from all of you has been incredibly rewarding. In a couple of episodes, we're going to wrap up Season 1 and take a break to prepare for Season 2. This season, we've spoken to some really interesting policymakers, founders, and CEOs who are setting the stage for whole-person health models. In Season 2, we'll be getting closer to the ground, where implementation and execution are happening. This episode is a preview of that on-the-ground perspective. We are here to talk to Dr. Clemens Hong, who leads community programs for LA Department of Health Services. His team coordinates many of the programs we've already covered on the show, like housing supports, reentry and diversion programs, street-based outreach, and benefits navigation. It's also good to remember that the L.A. context where this work takes place is really unique. L.A. County is 400 square miles. It's home to a little over 10 million people who live across 88 cities served by 100 hospitals. Population-wise, that means L.A. County is bigger than most states and many countries. It also has the largest population of unhoused people in the country. This was a really emotional and powerful interview. Dr. Hong is incredibly passionate about his call to service. He reminds us that health should be viewed as community justice work, rooted in the community-oriented primary care movement of the 1960s. He also underscores the need to build the capacity and agency of community organizations and experts. So please welcome Dr. Clemens Hong to The Other 80. It's so wonderful to have you on and I think we're really excited to learn about all the on the ground work you guys are doing in LA County and have been doing for many years. I think we've heard from a lot of big picture thinkers about what are the broad brush policies that are needed? How do we execute those at the state and national level? Uh, but I think when the work comes down onto the ground, but where the people meet the people, where the human actual support and intervention happens, it can look very different. Could you just start by telling our listeners about who you are, really as a person at the most foundational who is Clemens Hong MD
0: so I grew up in an immigrant family my parents came over to the. US um, when I was two uh, we landed in Chicago and we did not have a lot of money so we, we we didn't I didn't start with a lot of privilege I think over the span of my life um, I've developed a lot of privilege I would say and, and I had the benefit of love at home I would say that um, I was called to service at a very young age. I sometimes say that one of the first opportunities to serve came um, when we were living in a two-bedroom apartment in Chicago, and my grandparents lived with us. And so my, my parents, my, me and my sister, all slept in the same room. And so um, my mom and I, would, our beds were right next to each other, and, my, and it was always cold because we didn't have the heat on probably high enough. And my mom would ask me to sleep back-to-back with her keep her warm. And I think it's represented a little bit about the family that I grew up in. You know, we I was the oldest son. Um, my dad was the oldest son. My grandfather was the oldest son. We come from generations of oldest sons. And one of the things that in the Korean culture is that you have uh, wealth and the privilege, right? The wealth of the family gets handed down from oldest son to oldest son. And so um, there are certain lessons and teachings that my dad provided me starting at a very young age, um, Around a Korean sort of virtue, or called yangbo, which means to sacrifice, and the idea that you sacrifice for your family was something, and that I was called to serve my family um, for my whole life. Um, I think uh, and starting at you know seven or five or however old I was when I was back to back with my mom is a core part of who I am, and I think drives a lot of uh, my mission. And sort of, um, I think family is just broader; it's defined more broadly, right, in the community and the people that I've served and. I think over time it's even expanded. But it's that idea of taking this privilege that I'm given and giving back and and sacrificing for the community around you. So I think that at its core is sort of who I am. I think I lead, I try to lead with generosity and I try to sort of take some of those principles and apply that to, to what I do uh, in my work.
1: I picked a quote from Paul Farmer to ask you a question. And your story is the perfect and such a beautiful lead into that. And I I know as somebody who's trained as a public health professional, uh, that work can sometimes feel disconnected from the people, uh, you know, epi and biostats and even the Jon Snow stuff of finding the wells. It was about the wells. It wasn't about the people. And and I know when I read Tracy Kidder's book about Paul Farmer and his work in Haiti, it was so poignantly beautiful, both about his passion and service, but also about the challenges of leading that kind of a life. So the quote from Paul Farmer is medicine should be viewed as social justice work in a world that is so sick and riven by inequalities. And I'm just curious, you you're hearing this maybe for the first time, but how does that resonate for you?
0: It resonates. um, And I think too often, right, people have come to medicine um, with a sick care sort of mindset. I think it, a lot of the policies and, and what we've developed in, in this country in particular has sort of driven that. But at its core, right, delivering health to communities is, is social justice work, right? Especially when you talk about the populations that I spend my days, you know, worrying about and and, and trying to provide care for. Um, and I was, I was sort of driven into medicine by constructs around community-oriented primary care, Jack Geiger, the community health center movement. And those constructs are about identifying the needs of communities and delivering the things that those communities need to be healthy, um, whether it be selling textiles to build a sewage system or whatever it is. And I think a lot of that you know uh, has been lost because of the constructs that we've sort of seen put into place in this country. And I think a lot of what we've tried to do, right, and what we're trying to do now, I think, is to move back towards those constructs, towards th- the models that really think about health delivery more broadly than sick care, more broadly than health care delivery. But thinking about how we deliver health to communities, my hope going forward is that we can elevate, right, sort of those thoughts, right, those ideas of social justice at the core of how we deliver health in these spaces and, and develop more of a commons. And I think, you know, part of, you know, I think what we can talk about today is how we've tried to do that, right? How we try to deliver commons here through braided funding and other approaches that allow us to tackle delivering health, not healthcare or sick care or uh, those other constructs and really trying to think through what the needs of the community are and and trying to meet them.
1: When I was, pursuing my graduate degree in, in public health, I got really uh, interested in the history of, of FQ FQHCs. And um, there had been a pact, this was in Boston, there had been a pact apparently among the hospitals to mutually support their community health centers as the arm of health in Boston. And that had never been made into anything. I don't, I don't even remember the name of it, but I remember reading about it and being so excited and then <laughs> proceeded to go to some of the leaders at partners and other places and say like this, what about this? I didn't get good results from my effort to reinvigorate it, but it really um, stuck with me as, as kind of this beautiful concept of, and even the sick care part of our health system can be connected. Uh, they may do have a different service, but they can be connected to that goal in a really foundational way. Absolutely. So I want to take us through some of the specific work that you've done around re-entry housing for health and the whole person care pilots. But before we do that, I just thought it'd be useful to situate yourself in LA County. Um, when people hear county, I don't think many people understand the scope and breadth and sheer size of what that means in LA County. So I just thought if you could talk to us a little bit from the perspective of your role of what is LA County, which is where you do your work.
0: (laughs) So LA County is, um, is large, right? I mean, often people associate LA with the city, but the County is much larger, um, 4,000 square miles. um, I believe still over a little, a little over 10 million people. And the County structure, I think has 88 cities, unincorporated areas, you know, over 100 hospitals, right, just massive right across the board. And where I'm situated within that structure of government, the local government is in the Department of Health Services, which essentially is a healthcare uh, delivery structure. So we have um, hospitals and clinics um, throughout LA County, um, and and we provide services. But we're not, you know, the only providers, obviously, in terms of the safety net, we have numerous federally qualified health centers, we have numerous other clinics providing services and hospitals as well. The unit that I oversee is a unit called Community Programs, which has a number of different components. Housing for Health and the Office of Diversion and Reentry are two of the biggest ones. But we are you know, not a strict healthcare structure. We do have some clinical infrastructure, but a lot of what we do is we provide housing. We provide wraparound um, housing supportive services. We do work with the courts and with our jails to uh, do mental health diversion to the community and to housing. and and those sorts of structures. We do tons of street-based outreach to to different groups, unsheltered individuals to connect them to services. Um, You know, we do uh, benefits navigation. So it's a very broad um, construct relative to what you might consider typical for a hospital healthcare.
1: There's been a lot of focus on um, health-related work for re-entry in the last couple months. A large part of that was because of the, I think, Really pioneering effort that CMS approved in California to offer some Medicaid services um, for that group. Could you just paint a picture of the kinds of health challenges facing young people, men and women who leave jail and prison, from a from a kind of health and well being standpoint?
0: So, um, I think it helps to start by thinking about the population and, and where they come from, and the vast majority of these individuals. Um, started um, uh, sort of being survivors of trauma at a very young age. Often they are vic- are sort of survivors of generational trauma. Um, they are, you know, from, you know, passed down as a result of poverty or other uh, components from their parents to them. And, um, and then this leads to adverse childhood events in childhood. And those adverse child events lead to behaviors that often lead to school dropouts and um, involvement with individuals that may sort of, um, more closely associate them with the criminal justice system, drug use, mental illness, things that then, um, drive incarceration. And, and in the constructs of mass incarceration and systemic racism and, and the poverty that we see in Black and Brown communities, we disproportionately incarcerate men in particular, but people of color, particularly Black and Latinx individuals. And so, um, I think that that sort of is a, is a start point. And I think what you see when you look at this population as they um, sort of interact and, and are incarcerated sometimes multiple times as they go um, with a lot of distrust for the systems, they don't have a strong engagement with healthcare delivery models outside of maybe emergency departments and, um, and when they hit our jails, they don't come in with sometimes even the diagnosis of diabetes that they've had for five years or 10 years or, or um, clarity on what their mental health conditions are. They don't have access to treatment and they have numerous barriers to that. Let alone right what this is what this podcast is about is the other 80% of the things that that, that drive their health right housing um, having an income, uh, so sort of the stabilizing factors that underlie you know, access to food that underlie an individual's even ability to, to uh, be healthy and so so they enter the system in this way and then the jail is not a good place f- for anyone to be incredibly high stress environment. the care provision has been historically not good in, the, in those settings. Um, And then they come home, they're sort of released, then they come home. And depending on how long you've been incarcerated, the issues that they face are just a mountain of of challenges right from getting their uh, ids back right they've lost their ids they've they've had their medicaid discontinued if they have healthcare problems they've lost their social service supports that they had that you know provided some income or whatever it may need they've lost their jobs right and then on top of that you know you have clinical conditions that you're trying to address the substance use treatment uh, that they may need or the mental health treatment that they may need or uh, treatment for their diabetes um, and this is all in the context of of them also trying to reunite with their families who may have moved, right? Um, it just you can just continue to layer on the challenges that individuals face, and you can imagine how all of these priorities that are all for any one of us would be the thing we focus on, right, in our lives. To have ten of them, right, um, hit you all at once as you walk out that door, right, of the jails um, um, with no resources, right, to support you. And I think you know that that's a little bit the picture. I think that. We saw, and part of the impetus for the transitions clinic. I know we may not be ready to go there, but I'll stop after the story is.
1: No, go, go, yeah, oh, please, please.
0: Um, was that I was working as a resident in San Francisco General Hospital, and um, the the co-founder Emily Wong, who's just incredible, MacArthur genius uh, recently. But um, but uh, we were seeing people that were hitting our emergency departments and then being admitted to the hospital. And I remember seeing an individual that was admitted to my team who had left state prison, who had end-stage kidney failure and was on dialysis in jail without a dialysis appointment. And had come into our hospital and admitted admitted to the intensive care unit um, and had been transferred to the floor. And, and that was just mind-boggling to me that we as a, as a society could discharge someone with a life-threatening um, issue um, without dialysis. Um, this individual would die right Um, without coordination of that life-saving therapy and i think that's just an illustration of i think any number of problems that we're seeing i mean the number one cause of death and individuals with release from jail have a 13 times risk of death the number one cause is overdose right so we're not even touching that issue um, which we've just seen expand and accelerate unfortunately um, in la county and across the country but people are dying right people are getting sick because they don't have that coordination of care and so we met with people who have lived experience of incarceration and who had been involved as advocates in the community. We sat down and we, uh, Emily and I, really worked to try to develop a model um, to serve this, these individuals. And, and the things that we sort of learned is that, one, we need to take a trauma-informed approach. We need providers that have knowledge of, of all of the challenges we just discussed that people face when they come home. Um, we need clinics that are ready, people at the front desk that will receive these individuals. With, um, and ideally, you know, these are individuals from the community that have brothers and sisters that have unfortunately suffered the trauma of incarceration and, and they're open arms receiving them right into our clinics. You need the whole structure to be in place to do that. Um, and, and so we were thinking about how we do this work. And I think the key pieces was, were, was to find a clinic that was already delivering services in these communities. Um, We found an FQHC called Southeast Health Center um, that has, you know, that hires people from the community that looks like the community. Um, And then, you know, Emily and I provided care initially, but providers that understand the population, partnering with community organizations that can provide the other 80, right? The rest, right? So housing and supportive services, get them their IDs, get them connected to the child support entities to help them pay back their child support, all of these sorts of things. Um, and then we realized that what we were missing was that sort of critical engagement person to bring these people and build that trust. And and so the last piece of our model, which is arguably the most important, was a community health worker with a history of lived incarceration. And 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 so we went out and got some funding and we hired Ron Sanders. And, you know, Ron Sanders was a gentleman who, you know, uh, who grew up in a family just like what we were talking about um, he grew up in a family with alcoholic parents that would have big parties and leave alcohol all over the ground. You know, they would be sort of unconscious asleep in the morning, and Ron, at seven years old, would pick up the alcohol and start drinking. Right, growing from that place to um, from eighteen to thirty-two, basically going in and out of prison with substance use disorders. Um, you know, uh, addicted to crack, um, started committing crimes to 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 fund um, his crack use. And supported it and and um had gotten to a place where he had left his last incarceration and decided he had to change something. And shortly thereafter I had a son, which was a huge motivating factor for him to change. Um and had started working and had gone back and got an AA. And and so we, you know, gave him a job. And and the story, the two stories I have to tell about this are. One, I was the one going to these, what they call parole and community team meetings to try to recruit people to these clinics to say, Hey, you know, we have these amazing services, <laughs> you know, I'm in my tie, um, you know, yeah. uh, with my you know, privileged background saying, you know, I'm a doctor, I, I'm, I'm going to be the one to see you, please come. I have an appointment list here, please sign up. And I would get people to sign up, but then no one would come, right? We would see two people, three people on a the list of, there were about 30 people a week coming as soon as Ron started doing that, we saw almost a doubling of people come in. And there's a study that's been now done by the Transitions Clinic and one of our partner sites, Santa Clara, where they showed that arrival to the first appointment um, after incarceration increased from 30% to 70% with their hiring and implementation of a community health worker lived experience. And so, so I think this piece is such a critical piece of the model. And and engagement is the foundation to anything we can do in delivering health to communities, right? Engagement of the individuals in the, in that, that suffer, that are the survivors of trauma, but also the community-based organizations, right, um, are, are really critical. So we need to develop sort of pipelines of of individuals and CBOs to kind of come in and do this work. And that was the third kind of critical piece of the transitions clinic model.
1: So the reason I contacted you is J.C. Cooper, in our interview, we were talking about the Justice Initiative, which is the title for this new program in California. And she said, oh, my gosh, you have to talk to Clemens Hong, because he and his team really helped us figure out what to do and what to submit to CMS and even negotiate some of those pieces. And so... As we think about a statewide program that might start to provide some of that coordination, open arms as people come out, and and even Medicaid coverage, which has never been possible within a a carceral setting, I'd love to hear from you. How does the model that you developed and refined translate into this new statewide program? What are some of the issues you had to work through as you help support DHCS and their negotiations with CMS, what are your hopes and dreams at, or concerns about how this program is going to roll out in the state?
0: There was a lot of stuff, again, also with the support of the state and federal government that we were able to put on the ground through the whole person care pilot. And it's it's so terrific that that work has um, really led to this um, really critical policy change. And the things that we tackled, I think, um, with, with state support um, that were most important was actually being able to deliver care coordination services in our jails and really think through how we get people Medicaid at release. And and so we were able to, with Whole Person Care funding, um, and uh, develop a model where we would work while people were incarcerated 90 days prior to release to assess their individual needs, um, including Medicaid status. We were able to Sort of pending application for Medicaid that would be triggered and turn on the minute they were released, um, and then we were able to provide um, that, use that sort of screening to identify those needs in advance and we'll start working with community-based partners to fulfill or get people connected to those needs prior to when they uh, were released, um, and then at release try to give them some things that would help them, um, you know, deal with that sort of mountain of issues that we discussed earlier that they're facing. So we you know, work to develop programs to get them an ID when they go out the door, to get them a 30-day supply of medications, to have them walk out the door with housing or connections to residential treatment whenever possible, um, to get them you know, connections and appointments with their mental health provider, their substance use um, treatment providers, um, or their primary care, um, and then connecting them to different services and, and people out there in the social service side as well. And 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 that work was funded and the way we did it policy wise is we funded it, you know, after release, right? We um, sort of were able to receive an incentive or a, a, a support um, a support payment uh, for, for doing that work to make sure that that work was coordinated, sort of like an incentive um, structure, right? And that I think has turned into um, what is now available um, through the 90-day pre-release opportunity um, uh, through the 1115 waiver. In addition to uh, what we did in whole person care, there's the addition of some clinical delivery services, which were, you know, uh, which we didn't do as much of in whole person care. So the opportunity to provide medications for addiction treatment and long-acting injectables and, and some treatment prior to release, um, you know, those sorts of pieces. And then to really a greater emphasis on clinical warm handoffs where a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a nurse call and, and do a formal warm handoff to a provider in the community.
1: Are you getting lots of calls from other counties or other states at this point?
0: Um, yeah, you know, we're
1: not. Like, I haven't. I don't know. <laughs> <if others. laughs> maybe yeah. we'll after this. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I read through some of the reports you have on the website, and kudos to your team, you and your team, for putting out so much just information about what you're doing. I think learning in public is is such an important way to speed up um, scaling of these approaches. Um, And one of the figures really stood out to me, which is that you worked with 187 different community-based organizations uh, to bring together these new models. And I know you already described LA County being so large, um, your own organization is large. Now, you're needing to work with almost 200 new organizations. So I'd just love to dig into that a little bit. How did you go about that collaboration and partnership work, and what did you learn about how to do that effectively?
0: I do believe um, a lot of this uh, work was about moving um, uh, the funding that we're receiving as a county out to our partners, who are you know who are closest to the problem, who are the ones that are on the ground, seeing and delivering services, um, and really creating a construct in which they could deliver those services in a sustainable way, right? And I think that's been a big part of this. You know there's no one entity that can do this work and should do this work right We really do need to bring people who have have long done the work who have the ex- experience who have the trust of the community we've talked a lot about engagement already, but who who know how to engage and and um, and bring people into care. Um, we need to engage them in this work and and a key way to do that is to is to fund them and build their capacity right to do this and so that was a critical part of what we did and whole person care did offer us an opportunity to support and expand that um, in terms of building our capacity. It's It carries a broad range of challenges, and I think it all sort of relates to the need for us to bring in um, these entities um, earlier, right, identify what their needs are, and to help build that capacity and support it, right, through, through braiding of funding from different sources um, to sort of do that. And I think that's going to be a critical part of our path going forward. How might we better strengthen our, our community infrastructure, deliver care, um, and build a recovery-oriented, community-centered system of care to serve this population that isn't healthcare-centered per se, but health-centered, and, and it incorporates a lot of the social service entities that know how to do this work have been doing this work and can now do this work in a much more integrated way with the healthcare side.
1: One of the other big changes that Kellyanne brought was a transition of the locus of planning or execution to the health plans from the counties. And I'd be curious from your perspective as a county leader, how how have things shifted as we've moved into this more plan-focused approach, both in terms of opportunities that might bring, but also challenges that
0: might bring? I think what the transition from whole person care, which was, again, as you stated, a county program to a health plan or managed care program has been, I I think first and foremost, that it's been incredibly ambitious, right? Like there's a lot that the plans have taken on. I'll also say that some of the work that they've taken on is not core territory for health plans, right? Like they don't know how to deliver (laughs) food services and housing supportive services. And so, you know they've taken on this huge scope of work from an implementation perspective, right on top of a new subject matter uh, expertise that they need to develop and so I think it's been really it's been just ambitious and so I would say we still are as a result of that in very early stages of implementation um I think we've had there's been a lot of learning um and uh, and there's still a ton of learning to do as we implement these programs l a had a head start, but even there there's been challenges and so so I think um the biggest I would sort of bucket the challenge. The first is that we have not uh included all of the populations that I think are intended um and 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 there's certain programs that have not launched, particularly the community support services space community, community supports space um right uh, there we need more accessible kind of eligibility criteria. the plans are moving there um it would have been great to have that sooner, but again right in this big sphere of trying to do all of this at once. Um, we we do need to improve how we get people access to programs and services. There's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's people, for example, in the reentry spaces that don't have access to the enhanced care management benefit, even though they qualify and probably aren't aware of it. Um, and so I think there's more opportunity to do that. Um, and then I think there's an opportunity to really use this time, right? Uh to demonstrate and test models and see where there is value. Um, I think for the most of the community support services that are out there, like many would argue there is value and let's just make it a benefit and go. Um, but I think even within those constructs, there's opportunity to look at like where is the optimum value? Like how should we be sort of delivering these? Services? I think there's opportunities to really use this time to test that uh, more. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll raise is just the administrative burden. I think managed care, like counties we approached it very simply from a community-based organization perspective, especially. like Many of these entities are not Medicaid providers or sophisticated entities that today can claim Medicaid, right? And, and part of it may be that we need to build that capacity. But part of it is to really think about how we can simplify and reduce administrative burden. And I would say that there's been a remarkable amount of coordination between the health plans in LA County. It's been remarkable. Um, and at the same time, it's not enough, right? And And it's because and I think if LA County wasn't in this place to support it, we, we are an intermediary a lot. We, we contract and subcontract out um, and draw down the funding that then we use to pay the people that deliver the services. Those entities would not, in many cases, be able to directly work with the health plans or it would, redu- it would increase a lot of um, the administrative burden for the health plans. And so I think really working together to kind of simplify that um, is something we're doing and I think it would be really helpful and is an opportunity.
1: Just to touch briefly on your Housing for Health efforts, and I read, I hope this is updated, that you've placed 20,000 people or more in housing. And I'd love to just have you describe what these programs are, who they're serving, and what impact you've had um, as you've gone out and done those studies and evaluations.
0: Yeah, so Housing for Health is a housing-first model with wraparound supports, Um, and over time, we've built and are continuing to build a much more integrated delivery model that provides a full continuum of healthcare services. And one of kind of uh, we have a small specialized primary care operation, which is really trying to to grow and deliver great uh, sort of a broader set of services. And we've launched a mobile clinics team, which is a part of what I would call a field based primary care construct and so it's a typical street medicine program but we also want to think about when these individuals come inside these individuals that don't trust the system aren't coming to our facilities outside of ERs with emergencies as they come inside to interim housing sites and permanent housing sites what is what do they need right and do they need more of a site-based care model for a time until they can we can build that trust and engagement and transition them to the more brick and mortar facility-based structures of care delivery. And so I think we're really kind of thinking about what is the continuum of care and how do we provide it? Um, We have a large street outreach multidisciplinary team operation that engages individuals on the streets and brings people to care that's closely tied increasingly to the mobile clinics operation. We have a benefits advocacy entity that provides um, really navigation to SSI um, and SSDI and other benefits, which are critical um, sort of foundations to housing um, in, in many respects, because that check can help pay for um, the rent. Um, uh, and then we have um, a large uh, interim housing sphere, including a recuperative care, which is a sort of higher level of, of interim housing for those that have um, more significant medical or mental health needs. Um, and then we have a large permanent supportive housing operation, and you've already noted that we have you know twenty thousand people housed right um, currently. Unfortunately, more people become homeless than are housed um, every week here in LA County. But um, where it's obviously where we would be without it, I don't know. And um, and we are increasing our permanent supportive housing sphere by about four to five thousand per per year. Like right? we're housing more people um, in that permanent supportive housing space. We also have an enriched. Residential care model, which is sort of there's these adult residential facilities or residential care for the elders. We used to call them board and care type uh, facilities for people who have functional limitations. They need additional support. Um, I think this is a really critical part of the infrastructure for persons experiencing homelessness. There's so many individuals with disabilities with trouble, you know, managing their daily activities um, for living. And and so these these sites are going to be really critical for a subset. So, I think that covers most of it. We have a homeless prevention unit, um, which is really interesting that uses AI um, and risk prediction to identify people who are about to be homeless and tries to offer resources. So,
1: Wow. What are some of the risk factors that are most, that we might not be thinking about?
0: Oh, you know, there's a whole, uh, th- this is um, a uh, an AI-based model that's run out of the California Policy Lab, and they are able to mine um, county-level data, right? So we have Um, data from social services and all of these sorts of places to identify various um, uh, data elements that are linked to high risk of of losing housing or entering um, our housing navigation sphere. And then they use those data to to, provide us information to our homeless front unit. They make phone calls. And it's just shocking to me how many individuals they can engage just through a random, how many telemarketing calls do we get? We just hang up. And, but they're able to engage them at much higher rates than you would expect. And, 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 so it's a small program, but that's um, an interesting kind of unique.
1: That's so interesting. I'll have to look that up. That's incredibly interesting. I never would have, uh, with all the talk of AI, it's fun, it's fun to hear about one that's so, so focused on pain and suffering rather than on yeah. other things. <laughs> There's so many topics I want to cover and so little time. Uh, you know, you touched on this briefly, but I think, Uh, LA operates at a scale and level of political support and resources that are not found in every county. So I think there is a response people sometimes have to California in general and LA in specific, which is like, doesn't relate to me because I have a totally different (laughs) circumstance. So I'm I'm wondering what advice you would give other leaders and other places who may not feel like they have that full spectrum of support and funding on how to replicate or or borrow from what you've done in in those different environments?
0: Yes, maybe there isn't a measure H in every sector that brings you know hundreds of millions of dollars to housing support services. But there are opportunities in every locale to take the funds that do come to the county from various buckets. And instead of working in silos to deliver things, to sit at a table together and look for opportunities where you can integrate and braid that funding into something that's that creates a greater whole, right? And so how do you create that? And I'll call it a community table because I think it has to be broader than department heads or, you know, uh, deputy directors sitting at a table. Um, it needs to really in- include the community, right? So how do we do that? How do we bring community to the table? Um, you know, use these needs assessments that we all do um, to really drive um, a, a central or creation of a collective vision centrally. Just a couple things there I would say though, is that, you know, you really need to, As you do this, confer agency right um, to the people that are at the table, Um, and it's really hard. And I think, um, you know, I sort of come at this—you know—I try try to come at this with a lot of generosity and desire to provide support to help um, remove barriers and and resource and build capacity of these community partners, so that they're really truly partners in this work. And so, I think, um, how do we go about doing that? Create that table, invite community to the table, and really sort of have them over time drive it. It needs to be coordinated, but help them sort of drive sort of the, the the development of that vision. Um and then I think the last piece is tied to something I said earlier, which is like how do we move how do we as a system move away from what what I would call a medicalized sick care health delivery construct to a more community centered, recovery-oriented sort of system of care. And and I think the way I would illustrate this is we often in whole person care we saw this. We would Take a community health worker, build some trust, and navigate them to a clinic. And then that community health worker would sit in that clinic and have someone who isn't operating the most trauma and framework basically treat them terribly, and they would walk out that door, right? So how do we develop in our delivery systems, and I'm not just talking healthcare, really wide empathy towards people who are survivors of this cumulative trauma that we talk about? How do we train and implement trauma-informed sort of practices everywhere, right? So that when we navigate people, we're navigating them to a place um, that can be their their home, right? Their clinical home and where they can receive their services. So it's really meeting people where they are and 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 when they come to us, making sure we're ready to receive them, you know, with love and, and, and in a way that's going to build that trust that's so critical and really the start point for anything we can do to improve their health.
1: And I love, one of the things someone brought up um, recently is just how deficit-based so much of this work is. And so approaching things with love and a strength-based translates not just to how we interact with clients, but also how we interact with other parts of the community that are bringing strengths we don't have. And so it's kind of a lovely echo of um, the model that's needed kind of at it's sort of like looking in that mirror and seeing so many repeated images of the same practices and the same approaches. Um, so beautiful.
0: Yeah. I think that one of the things we do in care management is the comprehensive health assessment. And um, an illustration of what you were saying is we developed a list of questions that are there to identify needs, which could be considered deficits. And And I remember our community health workers just hated delivering it because it's like, why are we so focused on that? Let's like, and so they created a set of open-ended questions that they would do in the first meeting, right? That are all about strengths before you even bring on this kind of comprehensive assessment. And then they would introduce the comprehensive assessment, not just with the question. I'm I'm like, I'm going to go through this horrible set of questions with you, but, but it was based in those strengths. And, and, and in this sense that like, I want to build that trust and I want to be strengths-based. We do need to ask these questions because we want to get you what you need. Right. And, and so they were able to just completely redesign the process. Wow! And, and it just really speaks to like why it's so critical to have, mm. um, you know, folks from the community that and, and with lived experience at the table.
1: Even thinking about that from a community health worker standpoint, it goes from thinking about the community health workers like the person to build trust to no, they have expertise and. A level of understanding and skill that is missing elsewhere.
0: A hundred percent. Again,
1: thinking of that as, as a, it's a much broader strength than just thinking of them as like someone that the person can talk to, you know
0: yeah they are the expert they're not a tool for the system they are the system like if we do this right they become the system right and and our community health workers have gone on to nursing school and become nurses in our system have gone on to social work school or have become program managers or trainers in our structure right and so that that's the development right like and and you need to bring people sometimes in at the chw level but ideally you need to seek leaders at higher levels as well and and they'll bring this to every conversation, right? And they'll see things that I don't see, right? I mean, the second story that I was going to tell you about Ron that I that I didn't get to earlier is that I was in a clinic with Ron in the Transitions Clinic, Ron Sanders. Um, and I was making an action plan to help a, a gentleman that was a participant of, Whole Persi- of Transitions uh, Clinic um, to exercise more. And we were talking about exercising um, and going for walks in his community. And Ron pulled me aside and said, like, you don't know where this gentleman lives, like he can't go for a walk in his community. You need to come up with a different plan. And so I told Ron, you go in there and develop a plan, right? Because (laughs) I don't know, like, I don't know. I didn't grow up in these communities. You know, I come at this from a very different lens. And and so we need Ron at the table teaching us how to do this. Ron is the expert. and But how do we confer that agency to him? Because he's not going to come in, you know, with a doctor in the room and tell me, unless we create that opportunity that, you know, Clemens, what you're doing doesn't make any sense, right? Like that's a hard thing for someone to say to their boss or, um, or doctor, someone has got period, a level trained right. do, or a doctor, mm. period. Yeah, exactly. And so so it's so critical for us to to do that. And that kind of ties to like you bring people to the table, but how do you confer agency to them mm. so that they have the voice, that we view them as experts, that everyone in that room views them as an expert, mm. right? I love that. Um, and of course, how do you compensate them for that right. and value that?
1: Yeah. I'm going to ask you a final question and then we'll sign off for the day what is a leadership lesson you've learned the hard way?
0: Oh, boy. <laughs> I think people who come from privilege, even ones that come from a social justice mindset and someone who sits in a clinic and really does want to learn about the experience of the person in front of me, we, we always have blind spots. And we have blind spots in how we manage. And, and I think, especially when we bring people from the community into our structures, we have to support them in a different way and 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 give them voice in a different way. And and I think that in Whole Person Care, as I was sort of initially leading this effort, we had the opportunity to hire people from the community, um, particularly on one of our teams called the collaboration team. And I don't think that we provided, or I certainly didn't provide the level of support that they needed to really work within these structures, structures that have harmed them, right? Um, I don't think my eyes were wide open to that. Over time, they taught me some and I've continued to learn. And I think there's, so as a leader, that's probably one lesson is, I think even as a leader who really thinks about this stuff and tries to improve, like you still will have those blind spots. And I think that's something that we need to sort of uh, kind of create those opportunities for them to give us that feedback and to to really sort of be open to learning. Um, And I think that's kind of one of the lessons. I think a personal lesson, uh, which I think, Relates to a lot of people that do this work, mission-driven people that come to work is is really figuring out how to compartmentalize the work. <laughs> I think this is the kind of the biggest personal lesson. And I think I ran COVID testing in LA County. Um, you know, the, on the side, al-
1: along with everything else you were doing. Yeah, yeah, on the side,
0: <laughs> and yeah, and you know, working seventy hours a week, taking phone calls at midnight, and falling asleep, reading books to my children. Right as this was happening. And so getting emotional here, but I think what I've learned from that is that as much as I want to do this work, as much as my professional and personal missions are aligned in doing this work, I can't sacrifice my family, you know? So that was a key lesson for me um, personally. And I think still not there, right. We all you know talk about work-life balance and people are missionaries sometimes say there's no such thing as work-life balance, but there is right. We, we need to find time for family and make sure that, we're prioritizing across all of the spheres that that um, fulfill us. So.
1: And I guess if you think way broad, that that is what gives you the energy to do the work. So it's not even a choice between them. It's uh, it's it's the work to do to fill that strength back back up. Otherwise, I think we get rigid and and um, lose the ability, as you said, to be so sensitive to the needs of the community and the people around us. So. It's even, it's Absolutely. in service to the work. It's not, it's not like a separate, yeah. a separate thing. Um, Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Self-care. Yeah. Self-care. Care for yourself before you care for others. Right.
1: So. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah. LA County is, um, we're all so lucky to have you and your team and, and all the incredible people you're bringing together. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Your service.
0: Yeah, and it really it really is a, it really is a team and we have incredible leaders across our system um, from the supervisors the board of supervisors all the way on down and it's it's an incredible place to be right now I think um, and we really do hope that it won't just be about LA County we hope we'll d- deliver phenomenal care here but that some of the lessons learned here will impact policy will impact California and then the country more broadly. And,
1: A big thank you to Clemens Hong for joining us. I hope that his passion and clear call to service is as inspiring for you as it was for me. But I've been thinking about how much of a toll this work takes on leaders like Dr. Hong. So often we talk about these issues like they're at arm's length, and perhaps that's a coping mechanism. But we really do need to sit in and with the work we do in a way that's meaningful without barreling down the road to burnout. Dr. Hong reminds us that we have an obligation to create sustainable work and impact that does not fracture and destroy people. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery moore Kloss. There's more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, which is the season one finale, I'm Claudia Williams.